This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Thanks, Jeff. Hey, well, good morning, Trinity. I'm Ronnie. It's, 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 I'm so honored to open God's Word and study it with you. Uh, if you'll open your Bibles or your bulletins, uh, 1 John chapter 4, we're currently in a sermon series, right, of, of the first epistle. John, it's an ancient letter. And uh, let me, like, do an on-ramp here with a story. I want to tell you about the great British theologian and missionary Leslie Newbegin. Uh, Jeff and I, we read this guy's stuff all the time. He's such a careful thinker. So in 1936, he's a young man, and he left England, where the church in England, it was imperfect, but, you know, Christianity was the dominant religion. And he moved to India as a missionary. And when he arrived, as you might imagine, he found very few Christians. The culture was decidedly Hindu. And, and if you know much about Hinduism, you know there are thousands of gods. Uh, Hinduism is very much like a, a, a pluralistic religion in, uh, in the sense that they're uh, within the religion itself, there are many competing philosophies that kind of, uh, several voices that coexist. Um, in other words, there are, there are many spiritual voices competing for allegiance, but of course none of them are Christian, and so it was always clear to Leslie Newbegin his precise mission. He knew that there was the one true God. In 1974, Newbegin's now an old man, Almost 40 years later, he and his wife pack all of their belongings in two suitcases, and they take a bus, and they ride all the way back to England. And when he arrives, he barely recognizes England anymore. Those 40 years ha that he had been gone were revolutionary in, in a very meaningful sense. It's kind of hard to undersell just how big were the, the cultural shifts, specifically like in the 60s with the sexual revolution and the onset of post-modernity. So Newbegin left India, a non-Christian context where there were very few Christians, and when he returned home to what he thought was a Christian context, he found the same thing, very few Christians. The difference was that England still had all the vestiges of Christianity. There were churches and Christian culture, but there are now these new competing voices competing uh, for allegiance, right? Uh, all of them are claiming to be valid. And so it was really difficult to discern what was Christian and what was culture. Now, in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society, he talks about how his faith... Um, was now, now that he's back in England, is now being called into question as if he still lived in India. And so an argument that was thrown out to him would be summarized something like this, or people would say to him, you know what? No one person has the truth. In fact, people who say they have the truth are arrogant and dangerous. Let's all agree that all religions are equally valid paths to God. Now, let me just pause right there before I continue with this story. Where your children go to school, that assertion that I just made is absolutely accepted as truth. That's not even up for debate. 
that all religions are equally valid. It's not even contested. It is considered a fact. That's just the way the world is. Now, Leslie Newbegin has had that argument thrown at him all those years in India. And, and, and here's how the argument goes. Here's how he summarizes it. He says, uh, people would say, religion is like three blind men all encircling uh, an elephant. The first blind man is grabbing the elephant's trunk, and he says, God is like a, a free-flowing snake. And the second blind man, he's grabbing the leg, and he says, God is nothing like that. He's like a solid tree trunk, round and sturdy. And the third blind man is touching the side of the elephant, saying, both of you guys have it all wrong. God is like the solid and impenetrable wall, right? And so the logic of the parable is that all religions, like the three blind men, they're all describing reality. They're all partly right and partly wrong. But they're all describing ultimate reality, but in their own way. Now, Leslie Newbegin's life in the past 40 years in a pluralistic society prepared him for that kind of argumentation. He says to the culture who shares the logic of that parable, he says, the only way that you could even dare to tell the parable is if you know what ultimate reality is like. See, you're assuming that you can see the whole truth. As the teller of the parable, you are, you are the enlightened one who can see the whole elephant. You can see what those poor blind men cannot see. In other words, you're claiming to have insight into ultimate reality while denying that anyone else has it. That is incredibly arrogant, right? That is a claim about ultimate reality that is as exhaustive as anything a Christian would say. Now, why do I begin with this story? We are living in a post-Christian context, and there are so many competing voices inundating us and socializing us and forming us and leading us to believe that the world is a certain way and that God is a certain way. And how are we going to discern between all of these competing ideas about what God is like? I mean, how will we know the truth? That is the exact question that the, the people in the Apostle John's churches had. Those are the same questions. See, the Roman Empire was also a pluralistic society, and there's so many competing ideas infiltrating the church. It was confusing, but thankfully, this passage is quite sophisticated. It's going to help us with this. Now, let me just, before we begin, let me remind us of the context in which this letter is written. So John is writing to all these churches in Ephesus, right? Modern-day Turkey. You've got to remember, you guys, this is the early church. They didn't have creeds and confessions of faith and theology books like we did to help outline the basic beliefs of Orthodox Christianity. They didn't even have the New Testament, all right? They were dependent, the early church was dependent on oral communication and letters. So house churches, in which the, the New Testament was written into, were reliant on emissaries and letters sent by the apostolic community. That's what the New Testament's comprised of. The problem came when teachers and prophets arrived to these churches claiming insight and authority that was not theirs. So now, uh, now, so the question is, with all these sort of competing voices that were in, infiltrating the church, and it, it, how were they going to be able to discern 
what's true and what's false. How are they going to do that, right? Now, fast forward, you guys, into our modern culture. We have the Bible. We've got creeds, right? But we still live in an age that has us swimming with competing ideas about God. What was true for the Apostle John's churches is also true in our present age. And so I'm telling you guys, this text is so relevant. It's going to give us some categories to help us uh, for understanding, kind of discerning all these competing voices that we have going on in our culture. So as we study the passage this morning, John is going to equip us with ancient insight for modern people. And this is going to be really helpful, I hope. So the text is going to accomplish this in three ways. First, John is going to help us to understand the voices. Then he's going to help us to test the voices. And then he's going to help us to listen. So understand, test, and listen to the one true voice. So uh, with that introduction, would you now, in reverence to God's word, if you're able, please stand with me. And let's listen to this text and let's see what it has for us today. Hear now the word of God. First John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God does endure forever. May he bless it for you and for the preacher. You may be seated. So um, recently I've been listening to this podcast uh, called This Cultural Moment. And one of the hosts is this guy named Mark Sayers, and he's a cultural historian. So recently he was explaining that 200 years ago, it was virtually unheard of to not believe in God. Now, it was not the case that everyone was Christian, but at a minimum, everyone was at least a deist, right? For someone to say that that they were an atheist was incredibly, but incredibly rare. And most people lived their entire lives having never met a person who affirmed to be an atheist. Now, in our present age, 200 years later, it is now virtually impossible to live a life of faith without serious, if not crippling doubts. And you guys all know what I'm talking about, right? That moment when you say, what if I'm wrong? What if there is no God at all? The life of faith is hard work. See, nowadays, it is hard to believe, but those kinds of doubts that we have, 
they were almost altogether absent from your average person 200 years ago. People lived their entire lives in the words, what if there is no God, never crossed their minds. It's hard for us to believe that, but that category wasn't even on their menu of possibility. They couldn't even imagine or dream of a universe without a creator. And yet, our modern experience is totally different. Why is this the case? Well, what the cultural historians and the sociologists tell us is that our culture has changed. But, but not just like in style or language, but in accepted reasoning and accepted logic. See, our culture, now listen, our culture imposes on its members without us even being aware, a set of beliefs that are so fundamental and so basic that they are assimilated into our basic understanding of the universe. 200 years ago, God's existence was assumed, and to believe otherwise required argumentation. But with the onset of, uh, of humanism and the secularization in the West, our modern culture now assumes that God does not exist, and to believe otherwise requires argumentation. It's now the exact opposite. So every Sunday, I have to stand up here, I have to make arguments and apologetics, right, for God's existence, which I'm glad to do, everyone, all right? Uh, but, but, but that was never the case before. To say that God does not exist, that is not an argument. That is a naked assertion, and yet that presupposition has been assimilated into the baseline fiber of our logic and all our, of our baseline reasoning. You've maybe heard Jeff and I say this, use the metaphor of the fish and the water, right? Fish have no idea what water is because it's just an accepted, non-debated, non-reflected part of their world. We are swimming in ideas accepted as fact that we don't even know exist or even understand. We live in a world filled with voices that have predetermined the rules of the game. And they're so elemental that we don't even know that they exist. And it makes understanding who God truly is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Now, can I suggest to you that this reality, this phenomena, is not about faith versus doubt, it's not about religion versus irreligion. It's about competing spiritual voices that want you to believe with faith certain ideas about God. And the Apostle John is like super lucked into this, right? And let me show you how. Look there in verse 1. So John exhorts the church. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. Now, what precisely are these spirits that John is talking about? So he finishes in verse 1. He says, he says, test the spirits to see if they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So the spirits are represented by these prophets and these teachers. So remember, guys, remember the context. There are false teachers and prophets that are visiting these house churches. Now, if John is referencing prophets and teachers, why didn't he just tell us to test the prophets and the teachers? Why does he say test the spirits? Well, the, the, the theologian John Stott answers this. He says, we must not make the mistake of thinking that religious views are cognitive phenomena. He says, behind the range of religious perspectives 
are spiritual influences. In other words, this spiritual reality, these spirits are not only contained in religious environments, it is everywhere in the whole world. And this, of course, becomes explicit. Look there in verse 5 when John tells us their origin. He says, they, speaking of these prophets and these teachers who are pregnant with these spiritual ideas, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. So the world, you guys, is not divided into the spiritual or the unspiritual. The voices in our world are all spiritual, right? Y'all get that? So be warned. When John thought about the world and the church, he was convinced that both were spiritual realms competing with each other, both with loud voices about what God is like. Now, this, now y'all, this idea is so critical for modern people because to under, um, because <clears throat> although secularism, although secularism poses as a non-religious framework for life, that could not be any further from the truth. And, and, and if you'll, let, me, let me just give you one quick case study uh, on a very sensitive issue in our culture right now. Our society has come to accept the premises of gender theory, all right? Uh, for those of you who don't read philosophy on the weekends like me, um, it's, it's, it's really complex, but uh, just to make it simply, it essentially proposes that biology... And sexual identity must be separate, right? In other words, or from using the words of Simone de Beauvoir, she says, one is not born a woman, one becomes one, right? So historically speaking, your gender is inseparably tied to your biology, but now that is understood as being regressive. That's understood as regressive. Now listen closely. To everyone lock in real quick, because I want you to hear my heart. Uh, matters, because matters of... Um, Sexual dysphoria or same-sex attraction, they are real and they're prevalent in our culture. We, we want to be a church that is exploding with compassion and patience and love with people who find themselves in these categories. We all have people that we love and respect whose stories are marked with these things, all right? The world can be really lonely for people who who have that, that is a part of their story, all right? Same-sex attraction or sexual dysphoria. Um, and, 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 and if you know someone, what, what you want to do is you want to walk with them, you want to love them, you want to listen to them. But what I'm trying to do right here is I'm, I, I, just, I don't want us to be assimilated just because, um, because it's culturally unpopular, all right? So I don't, want, I don't want us to miss how we got here. So follow me real briefly on, on how this works. Science, as a discipline, is suited to observe and describe phenomena, right? So it, it looks at chromosomes, and it says there are X and Y chromosomes, and those combinations determine your sex. But now... Our sexual identities can be completely divorced from our biology, thus introducing a whole host of options for our self-understanding. And then for those of you doctors out there, and there's a few of you out there, I'm not here uh, referencing uh, con- congenital adrenal hyperplasia, all right? So I just want to say that because there's a few of you who are listening with different ears. So for instance, um, a notably common category is transgender, all right? Uh, this is when a person's gender identity does not match their chromosome combination. 
And here's what I want you to hear. That phenomena of transgenderism is a modern social construction based on philosophical, political, and moral commitments. That is to say, it is tied to certain beliefs and positions and faith commitments about morality, about ideology, and about choice. And these commitments cannot be proven with the discipline of science, right, or in a lab. And yet our society has already assimilated us into believing that this is just the way the world works. It's just the way that it is. Now the logic of gender theory is accepted as fact. And in fact, because we're swimming in this uncritically, this uncritically accepted pool of logic, the option of, for being transgender is possibilitized in a person Whereas under the same exact circumstances 200 years ago, the same person would not have opted to be trans. But now our cultural menu offers a new template for self-understanding. And so we use that template to understand ourselves. We, we take it upon ourselves. This is not science. This is an issue of beliefs about reality. Right? And I mention all of this like really reverently and really compassionately, but I want to give you guys categories for how this works. You can see the underbelly of these things. It is the ground upon which we are standing, not debating. And while our society wants us to think that this is a non-religious position, it is incurably religious. Because what, what is religion? It, religion is a set of beliefs about the nature of what is true and of what ultimate reality is. And I know that the courts and our academic institutions and our legislation alleges that Christian beliefs are religious and secularism is neutral, but this is not true. The Apostle John makes these assumptions explicit when he says that the origins of these spirits are from the world, right? There are spiritual realities unprovable commitments, right, behind every single voice in our world. And we will get caught off guard if we're not clear in our understanding about how these voices work in our, in our modern times. All right, there's more to say, but I want to I keep going. I want to keep making, seeing what John does here. So we saw that John demonstrates that there are a variety of voices, all of which are spiritual, even if they pose as secular, even if they're from the world, they're spiritual. And they're trying to shape how we perceive ultimate reality. Now, this being the case, John gives us a test. Now, when I use the word test, some of you guys get really excited about tests, all right? You were made for scantrons and bubble sheets. And if that's you, I would love to see you after the service to get help with mental health, and we'll work with you. For the rest of us, we're not that into tests, right? Now, I grew up in Texas, and in fourth grade, I don't think it exists anymore. This is like the 80s. We had to take the TAS test which is the Texas Assessment and Ability Skills Exam. And this is like a huge standardized test. And based on the results, schools would get funding or not, all right? So, there's so, so teachers had to, had to really prepare all of their fourth graders to do really well on this test. And there's, there's so much pressure on teachers, and therefore that trickles down, and so much pressure on fourth graders to absolutely crush this test. You would think like this was like the MCAT or something, right? I can remember, y'all, the day of the test. It was all highly rehearsed. 
I was nervous. The teacher gives all the students the packet and the answer sheet, and then she begins to read the script, and she says, begins, all students must have a number two pencil. Oh my goodness, that's the first question, and I don't know the answer. What is a number two pencil? Like, I know what pens and pencils are, but I don't know what a number two pencil is. Does that mean like I have two pencils? Like, I don't understand. I'm already failing. I'm like so stressed out about this. Tests can be stressful. If you're like me, I have really good news. The test that John is offering is not a test to take. It's a test to use. It is a test for you to give you protection. So what is this test? How do we test the spirits? What is this test testing for? So if you'll recall the context, let me, I know I give the context a lot, but y'all need to hear this stuff because the text won't make sense. Let me just summarize it real quick. Roman Empire, there's a philosophy called proto-Gnosticism. It was becoming, that was the, compete, the voice of the time, right? The competing voice. And, and proto-Gnostics, they divided the world into spiritual and, and, and uh, physical realms. And the spiritual realm was considered uniformly good. And the physical world was the realm of contamination. And so this particular sect that was in the church taught that the Messiah was a spirit, but he was separate from, the, uh, the, from Jesus of Nazareth. And so they allege that the spirit entered into Jesus and then left. And John is saying... The, those voices, those voices are violently against the Messiah. That is the spirit of the Antichrist. That's why he's using that super strong language. And so, if that's the spirit of the Antichrist, how do you know what the spirit of God is? Verse 2, he says, by this you know the spirit of God. Look there. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come, not simply born, but he has come in the flesh is from God. Now, I want you to notice that language. Jesus, the Messiah, this Christ, did not begin to exist when he was born. He has come to us. Y'all see that? He arrived when he was born, and he has come to us in the flesh. He's not this disembodied ghost, right? He's not a ghost. So if you deny either that Jesus is 100% man in the flesh or 100% God, that he has always existed, not just when he was born, he'd come, he's always existed. If you deny that, you're completely wrong, and you don't know ultimate reality about what God is like. If Jesus is not 100% God, then he can't be perfect, and we can't be forgiven. A, a perfect sacrifice is required, and if Jesus is not 100% man, he can't be a substitute for us and die in our place. I know this is simple, but like everything in our faith hinges on us getting this right, okay? And that's why G John says, as the sort of authorized teacher, verse 6, he says, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth from the spirit of error. Now, all this might seem like trivial theology moment here. Let me explain why this matters. Hang in there with me. Christians do not place their faith in Christianity. Christianity is not a philosophy for life. Christianity is an assertion about the God who is there. Okay, so like think about karma, all right? Everyone think about karma. Karma is a system or a philosophy of beliefs. It's kind of like a cosmic ledger with credits and debits, 
right? This is a belief about the world, but you don't have a personal relationship with karma, right? But with Christianity, that is precisely the case. Christians believe that God can be known and only known through Jesus Christ. And because that is the very essence of our faith, what you say about Jesus is the single most important thing. Jesus is not an idea. Jesus, the Son of God, he stepped out of heaven, robed himself in flesh, born in a manger. He lived a perfect life. He actually died and hung on a Roman cross. His innocent blood was the currency by which your soul was purchased. And then he resurrected on the third day. All of this happened in time and in history, and you can know him. And in fact, you must know him. The voices in our society will try to create this entire matrix of beliefs, of belief that will make faith in Christ impossible or more likely unimportant or irrelevant. That matrix of beliefs is not secular stuff. Those are religious assertions masquerading as secularism. Test those spirits. The spirits are spiritual voices aimed at making faith in Jesus, as he is revealed in scriptures, implausible, unlikely. Test him so that your vision of Jesus is never marred, that he would remain beautiful, believable, your God who, 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 who deserves your deepest loyalty. Test those spirits with the scriptures, with theology. And if Jesus comes through as the single most stunningly beautiful and believable person in your life, then you know you're on the right track, right? There is nothing about Jesus when you know him for who he is that will make you think that it is business as usual. Nothing. All right, let me quickly recap. The Apostle John, he wants to equip us to discern these competing voices in our world, right? They're all spiritual. So what he does is he shows us there's a variety of spiritual voices that exist. And then second, he gives us a test to use to evaluate those competing voices, all right? That's what he's doing so far. Now, lastly, John wants to help us to listen to the one true voice that speaks to us. So if you'll see there in your text in verse 7, John sort of abruptly moves right into love. Right? He's like, you start talking about love, and why is that? It's because he understands that true faith always has a real expression in life, okay? Faith isn't just this, like, thing that sticks in your head, right? It always has a real expression in our life. Now, follow the logic. You and I will tend to trust the voice of the person who we trust loves us, all right? And when our tanks of love are full... We will love others. That's how it works. This, of course, is true with God. All right? Y'all see that? Do you, do you? I mean, do you believe that God loves you? I mean, no, like, I get, think about all of your besetting sins. Think about all those dark closets that just make you squirm. He knows it. Ask yourself, do you believe that God loves you? And what would be the basis of his love for you? 
1916, the emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Franz Joseph I, he died. He was the last monarch of the Habsburg dynasty, a dynasty that lasted like 600 years in Europe. And when he died, this became like an empire-wide affair. And so all the military put on their finest garb and uniforms, and they marched through the city parading the casket. And the parade was heading to the imperial crypt that was located in Vienna. When the soldiers arrived, they went to the lower courts, uh, chambers uh, of the crypt, where they were met with this closed gate. And on the other side was the overseer, the cardinal, and who breaks the silence. And he says, who goes there? We carry the remains of his imperial royal majesty, Franz Joseph I of Hungary, king of Austria, royal duke. And this officer continued with 37 more titles, listing his accomplishments and his status. We know him not, says the cardinal. And then he asks again, who goes there? This time the officer shuffles his feet, shortened his response. We carry the remains of the imperial royal majesty, Franz Joseph I. Again, we know him not. Who goes there? And this time the soldier lowered his head and he mumbles. We carry the dead body of Franz Joseph, a brother and a sinner. And the cardinal responds, open wide the gates. What is going on there? The cardinal wants everyone to know just how remarkable God's love is. This is not an exchange. This isn't a bartering system. Your merit, your merit is not the basis of God's love. This is his unbreakable, secure, and enchanting love. And the Apostle John wants you to be crystal clear about this. He says, look, he looked there in verse 9. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, right? So God's going to show us his love. He says that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. God gives us the most precious thing in the whole world, his own son, so that being enchanted by it, it would tune your ears to hear his voice so that you can hear what the sound of love sounds like. And then verse 10, in this is love. So he says, what is love? And then John begins by telling us what it's not. He says, it's not that we have loved God, right? You didn't give your son for anyone. You didn't earn this with your holiness and your performance. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's not that you were lovable and so God looked at it and decided to love you. It's that you were unlovable. You're a mess and God loved you first and he made you lovable by washing you with his own blood. 
God is not, he's not angry anymore, right? He fixed that problem. That's what propitiation is. He's not mad at you anymore, right? And when you know, and when you're certain about this, that you're loved, and that it is full, and that your love take is full, you will listen and love God and love others sacrificially. And when you're in this crowded room, and there's so many voices talking at you, talking at the same time, all of them demanding your attention, you'll be able to hear God's voice through it all. If you're certain about this, right? If you're locked into his love for you, and what will that voice, when he's speaking to you, and there's all these voices, what will it say? Listen to these words from Romans 8. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read for you Romans 8 for you. because It has everything to do with these spirits. The spirits whose voices we hear. Verse 14, he says this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, not the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption, a son's by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's the voice that I want echoing off the walls of your chest and soul. That's the voice that when you test it, it will never let you down. This whole text, the whole point of this is that you would be dead certain that God loves you that he's nuts about you, and that that would transform you. Because there's so many competing voices. All of them seem like that's just the way it is. And Jesus is letting you peek into ultimate reality about a father's love. Not an angry father, but a father's love whose anger has been propitiated so you would know him. And you would be certain of this love. Even when you blow it, even when those dark chambers of your sin surface, and they will, you will be certain, and you will press on. May God bless his word. Amen.